For daily content, reporting, and much more, follow the pod on Instagram at Bartholomew Town Podcast. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, the inaugural installment of our recurring series on the 2020 presidential election with Brown University political science chairwoman, Dr. Wendy Schiller. Always a pleasure to spend some time together here on the pod, welcoming all of you who are joining in for the first time. Now, you can find new episodes of Bartholomew Town every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your pods, or head right over to BartholomewTown.com. There's over 150 episodes waiting just for you. Okay, let's get right to it. Installment A of our deep dive into the 2020 presidential election, a recurring series here on Bartholomew Town, along with Dr. Wendy Schiller of Brown University from The Loft in Providence. All right, we are here for the inaugural edition of 2020 Podcast, which you can find at 2020pod.net or right here on your subscription to the Bartholomew Town Podcast. And joining me, the one and only Dr. Wendy Schiller of Brown University. Good morning. Good morning, Bill. All right, so here we are. We're taping this right at the end of 2019. Feels like we're just breathing life into the next phase of the presidential election cycle here as we enter the new year. So let's kind of talk about heading into... Iowa, New Hampshire, where everyone sits and what a likely, in, in terms of the Democratic side, where, where the candidates sit, and then sort of a likely one, two, three in your mind of how this is going to play out over the next few months. Well, I think the the front-running group has expanded. It was Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden. And I think you have to include Pete Buttigieg now in that group, even though his poll numbers aren't as high, they're climbing, and he's raising a lot of money. So I think he's turned himself into a potential VP. Maybe I'm going to do this for the first time. It'll be my experience. To somebody who, if he comes in, probably in the top three in New Hampshire and or Iowa, I think he becomes formidable. And it becomes a really interesting contest in the Democratic Party. Right. So it's it's almost like he's the one to watch, if anything, as far as a major moving part in how this will play out. Everyone, of course, we're watching. But that, I guess, is the most unknown in in my mind as far as will will people buy in to Pete Buttigieg? Um, it, does he appear presidential, I guess, to to those who are going to be voting in these in the caucus and then the first primary? You know, it all depends on who turns out. And that's true of every election. If young people turn out the way that they're promising to turn out, then I think he becomes sort of like, let's get a change. We don't want somebody older. The other three are in their 70s, or Elizabeth Warren's just over the cusp of uh, being in her 70s. And I think they may say, listen, we don't want same old, same old. The other scenario is that Elizabeth Warren becomes the nominee and Pete Buttigieg is the vice president, or Biden is the nominee and Pete Buttigieg is the vice president. But I think there's a big Achilles heel with Pete Pete Buttigieg in general with African-American voters, and that's why South Carolina is really important. It comes after Iowa and after New Hampshire. Pay attention to South Carolina, because if Buttigieg comes in second in South Carolina to Biden, which is what Biden's expected to win, and gets uh, gets any portion of African-American vote, then the argument that he can't attract African-American voters goes away, and that becomes another reason to look closely at him. Right, and you wonder how much more machine backing he gets at that point. Michael Bloomberg, of course, his entire operation staked on South Carolina. Can he be an, a disruptor? By the time we get there, we're retroactively now looking at Iowa and New Hampshire that you really have to consider that Bloomberg metric, if you will. 
You know, it's, it's interesting because the African-American community within the Democratic Party uh, is a very big proponent of social justice programs, income equality, uh, economic opportunity. However, they, as a rule, in terms of public opinion, tend to be fairly conservative on social issues, um, even on gun control and on crime. So, you know, it's a, it's a real puzzle. Will Southern African-American voters respond to Michael Bloomberg? Northern African-American voters, those who live in cities, uh, don't, like the, don't like him because of stop and frisk, which is a policy of stopping people at random and disproportionately people of color, men of color, and frisking them. So that, that became a very controversial thing under Bloomberg. And you have to ask yourself, Southern African-American voters are different from Northern African-American voters, and many of them may own guns. And Bloomberg's a very big proponent of fewer guns. So in all ways, I'm not sure how he fits in South Carolina to attract African-American voters. And if you can't do that in South Carolina, you can't win the Democrat Party. Right. You almost have to look back to Jonathan Edwards or something like that. You know, this this brand of very specific personality slash gun positions that are somewhat vague that can slide in in those moments. Bloomberg's not that. No, he's not that at all. Now, he could do very well in New Hampshire. So that's the big question mark. Does he do really well in New Hampshire? Does he come in second in New Hampshire, for example? Which would be a, a very big blow to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren because they're both from the New England area. Uh, and I don't think Biden expects to win New Hampshire, but he has to place, I think, in the top three. Iowa is an interesting thing. He's a businessman. There's a lot of uh, people who, who rely on trade and agriculture in Iowa. So that could be a surprising result. Uh, but then if you if you think about African-American voters and then you think about women, what if there's no women on the ticket? What if Elizabeth Warren sort of collapses? She's been she was on riding high and then she made she stumbled. And the question is, can she recover? Another woman that may be on the ticket is Hillary Clinton. Uh, that's a name that I mean, that that could just be silliness. That could be as ridiculous as Infowars or something like that. But it could also be looking at her Howard Stern appearance, body language. Maybe you go, maybe it might be there. The machine's probably essentially Biden's team, you know, so can she usurp any momentum that Biden has to become a, a front runner in your mind if she entered? I think the big the big prize in 2020 in the general election are independents and suburban voters, particularly suburban women, uh, college educated, not college educated. These are the people that have been switching their vote. We know in 2016 that uh, the majority of college-educated women voted for Hillary, but the majority of white women voted for Trump. And we know in 2018, women voted for Democrats. So they switched. The question is, will they switch back? I'm not persuaded that bringing Hillary Clinton back accomplishes that goal. And then do you lose independent and suburban men if Hillary Clinton's the head of the ticket? I think Elizabeth Warren's going to fight awfully hard to keep any, any Hillary Clinton momentum from starting. You would think that she just unfortunately by... Identity politics has the most to lose at a certain level. Yes, and I, I think she is also liberal. She's actually more liberal than Hillary Clinton. Sure, yep. And, uh, you know, so I think Elizabeth Warren has the money and the wherewithal and the energy to thwart any kind of um, comeback by Hillary Clinton. But the, the bigger question is, do, do the Democrats need a woman on the ticket to get women to vote for them? We know that there's a record number of women in the House because of the 2018 elections and that women voted for women. Uh, they don't typically always choose a woman versus a man, but when they have an option, they, they can vote for women. So will they stay home if there's no women on the ticket? Will Amy Klobuchar have to be the VP in order to satisfy that? Fascinating stuff right there. And yeah, I mean, you never know. You get We've had Sarah Palin as a vice presidential candidate in recent times, so... 
Anything's possible. Anything's possible. Amy Klobuchar has bona fides, right? She's sure. uh, she's from Wisconsin. She's uh, I'm sorry, she's from Minnesota, and she uh, can do well in Wisconsin theoretically. It's a neighboring state. She's been doing well in the debates, and uh, if you talk to people who call themselves independents or maybe libertarians or people who are a little bit more conservative fiscally, they like her. She's been pushing back on these really big spending plans in the debates. If she continues to be able to do that, I think she sets herself up as an asset as a VP. Interesting stuff. Before we look at the current president and uh, his opponents in in terms of within the the party, which is basically nonsense, Uh, your take, let's go Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, one, two, three. It's like the NFL prediction shows here. We've got to get some music blasting. You know, I I do think Bernie Sanders probably has the edge in Iowa, uh, particularly, you know, just because he's already had a campaign presence there and done very well there. So I think he might ha- have an edge there, uh, but I, I, I suspect it's between Sanders and Biden in Iowa. In New Hampshire, I wouldn't be surprised if Bloomberg's on the ballot, uh, I haven't confirmed that, that he does very, very well. Uh, I think Biden might be able to sneak in a win there. And it's really, as I said, up to Buttigieg to come in in the top three. And so South Carolina, I think it's Biden's to lose, right? So right now he's just way ahead and he's doing really well. And I think he's trying to cement his support among African-American voters. And remember, as you go into Super Tuesday, which is in March, you have a lot of southern state primaries. And if he can build enough momentum off that, he can build a lead that you know starts to really squeeze everybody out. It's going to be interesting to watch also what the next few months look like in terms of ad spends. I mean, is there going to be another infusion of $30 million in a weekend by Michael Bloomberg, or is anybody going to do anything creative? Similarly, some of the activists, particularly on the, the I don't, I hate to use the term far left because that's, you know, but we saw the Sunrise Movement confront uh, Vice President Biden at Brown or nearby Brown a few weeks ago. Just the general idea of, of questioning the party from within do you feel like those sorts of factors, public opinion and the influencing of that by either actors, good or bad, or media, uh, marketing, and so on and so forth, do you think that has the ability to really shift things before we get to, let's say, South Carolina? Well, you know, I think if they, if the quote-unquote far left has any influence in the next couple of months after the caucuses and primaries start, it would be to give Elizabeth Warren a boost. She's clearly the most now. She looks to be the most liberal with her Medicare for All plan and it really being spelled out to be big and bold. And Bernie Sanders says, well, it was my idea, but she took it and she ran with it. It costs her votes in the general election, I think, but I think it. she's clearly the most liberal now that's sort of viable. So I think it helps her her. And I think she'll cultivate it and she'll try to push it. And then she'll just try to modulate back if she is the nominee and backtrack on it. And it will be a really stark choice if Elizabeth Warren is the nominee versus Donald Trump in terms of what voters want from government. And it'll be, you know, reminiscent of the 1980s and that kind of choice. Yeah, it will really paint a picture of where maybe the Democratic Party is is either heading or where 15, 20, 100 years from now, we see, ah, that's where the seeds were truly planted for a third party in the U.S. The problem with the the third party obstacles, the, the, the obstacles are that, and it's changing a little bit, is that the way that we vote, we choose one person 
in a in a primary, and then we choose one person in a general election, and it's called single member district voting, plurality voting, who only needs to get more votes than anybody else. You're starting to see more things like runoffs. We have that in Louisiana. We have that in a couple of Georgia. Fall River. Fall River, exactly. <laughs> California has no no party primaries right. anymore, so it becomes essentially a runoff election. Those kinds of ballot changes. I'm not sure ranked voting actually does what people think it does. It's pretty complicated for voters to understand how that works. You have to give an assigned rank to your preferred candidates, and then whoever somebody who comes in second on your ballot might actually end up winning because if they get enough ones and twos in terms of ranking. But it's very confusing, and I'm not sure voters will warm to it. I think the open primaries with no party affiliation, the runoff balloting that we're seeing more of, that encourages people to run because you need to get a majority. And so a third party can be a spoiler, but then a third party could eventually win. I think what happens in American history tends is that third parties pop up and they do they raise an issue like the deficit with Ross Perot in the 1990s. They put that issue on the agenda. That gets addressed and swallowed up by the two major parties, and the two major parties shift. You can say the same thing about the Tea Party movement in 2010. It, it became the Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives, and it has pushed the Republican Party far more to the right than it was before. So that's what third parties accomplish, which is a big deal. You're changing the platform. So the Democrats have to decide, do they want to be McGovern in 72, which was ext- you know, much further left than before, and lose badly, or even Walter Mondale in 1984 against Ronald Reagan, or do they want to be Bill Clinton or Barack Obama? And, you know, that's who wins. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. These are the people who have won as Democrats in the last 40 years. So a little history might be good for Democratic primary voters to think about. Let's talk about on the Republican side. Obviously, today, I mean, we're recording this on Thursday. The president's going to be articles of impeachment. Are, it's it's going to happen. He's We're going to go to a Senate trial almost Certainly barring, I guess, a national emergency or something totally unforeseen. How is that going to impact the president as he campaigns? Does it rally his base or does it push those critical independents and suburban women away from him? Well, I mean, President Trump, uh, the House of Representatives is recommending, will recommend and uh, consider articles of impeachment that concern the abuse of power in the Oval Office to gain what we call dirt on your opponent, right? He asked for an investigation of Biden and Biden's son, Hunter, in terms of involvement in, in Ukraine, and he held up congressionally approved, legally authorized aid, foreign aid to Ukraine, who's an ally in, uh, with the United States against Russia. You know, people probably think that's not something they want the president to do. Do they think it amounts to something removable from office? Probably not. But they want him to be told, don't do it. And impeachment power isn't just about removal. The framers split it up between the House and the Senate. They understood this could be political. They understood it could be partisan. They wanted the House to have the power to tell the president, you stepped over the line. Don't do it again. And then the Senate to decide whether it was that serious. That's what their goal was. So people say this is just partisan. It doesn't matter because the Senate won't convict. That's not the point. The founders wanted the House to have this power to impeach, which is to sort of impugn your character or your behavior and say, don't do it again. So I think that's the way it will play among the American people. And if Trump doesn't do it again, I don't think it hurts him. Uh, It hurts Biden, and here's why. If Biden is the nominee, then this issue of Hunter Biden sitting on a gas company board in Ukraine while Biden was vice president, why didn't somebody say that's not a good idea? Uh, What was the point of that? Was he peddling influence? Did, Did anything ever come across Joe Biden's desk concerning this? And that's an issue now. And eight months ago, it wasn't an issue. We never heard of it. We didn't even know about it. So the Democrats, by impeaching the president on this particular issue, may end up weakening their party nominee. 
Yeah, that's been the fear of centrists all along, really, here, centrists in the Democratic Party. No challenge whatsoever from, uh, I don't know, Bill Weld or whoever, the, who's, who's the other guy, talk radio Joe guy? Walsh. Joe Walsh. Joe yeah. Walsh. That's, that's nothing? I don't know if it's nothing. Joe Walsh just had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week. So the mainstream media, if you're going to call the Wall Street Journal mainstream media, they are still, you know, hearing his voice. I think there are Republicans that find Donald Trump distasteful, but they also want smaller federal government. They want lower taxes. They want the U.S. to stop fighting wars everywhere. So I think there's an appeal to the actual policies that Donald Trump is implementing, even if there's a strong distaste among Republicans for his rhetoric and his personal behavior and his conduct as president. So I think that's where the Democrats have a real challenge. How do you how do you get them off that position and say, it's enough is enough, it's it's not acceptable, especially if Biden becomes tainted or weakened by any sort of, you know, association with his son as vice president. And that's something to take seriously if you're a Democratic voter. Most definitely. All right. Last question here as we, uh, we kind of wrap up our intro here, 36,000 feet above a presidential election. Where does this rank for you in terms of, you can't use the word important because that's, that's not the right way to describe it, but the engagement of the uh, the general population, even people who aren't able to vote in this election, do you feel like this is going to produce high turnout and a turnout that even is more passionate than the turnout for Obama that I can remember living in New York, you know, that level of just enthusiasm, people making posters of, of Barack Obama. I guess you could say that about Trump. People literally are driving around with flags on their trucks in, in Rhode Island, but the enthusiasm. You're, you're raising... Bill, you're raising a really, really important uh, question. And the disadvantage for a party that runs against somebody who has, you know, 56 to 58 percent disapproval rating, which is, you know, astoundingly high for an incumbent who's going to run again, is that people will get out the door for somebody they like more easily and more quickly than somebody they dis- to, to vote against somebody they dislike. So I'm, I may be a voter that, you know, loves Trump. I'm going to get out the door because I love Trump and I want to affirm my vote and support for Trump. But I may be a voter that doesn't love the Democrats but hates Trump. Then I probably will vote, but not guaranteed. People respond to a positive incentive better than a negative incentive. Negative campaigning can switch your your mind, change your mind if you're already inclined to vote. But positive incentive is to get out the door. And with Obama, there was a lot of positivity. I think even with Bill Clinton, there was a lot of positivity. Uh, Jimmy Carter promised to turn the page. Even Ronald Reagan in 1980 was a positive candidate. So that's the big challenge for the Democrats. They've got to have some ticket that has some spark and enthusiasm. They can't just rely on the I can't stand Trump because it's never a totally sufficient motivator. Dr. Schiller, a pleasure. We'll see you in 2020. Big year. Looking forward to it. All right. Remember new episodes of The Pod every Tuesday and Friday. You can follow me on Twitter at Bill Bartholomew. Until next time, we'll talk soon.